Joshua chapter 6, uh, we are in. And uh, while, you're, while you're turning there, let me, let me tell you another story about Jericho. Uh, I visited Jericho, the city of Jericho, which is, which is still there. It's been rebuilt in several times, but uh, it still exists in Israel, in, in the nation of Israel. And uh, I visited Jericho a few years ago, and after we had visited the city, but while we were still in Israel, uh, this was back in 2006, the Israeli Defense Force launched this all-out attack on a prison in Jericho. Uh, there were some Palestinian inmates there who had, who had been uh, there for quite a while, and one of them was quite a high-profile target. He was, allegedly, uh, he was alleged to have assassinated the Israeli tourism minister at some point, so they were uh, tipped to be released from this prison. And uh, obviously the Israelis had had word that these guys were going to be released, and so they rolled into town, and I mean, they don't, they don't hold anything back, you know, the Israelis, when they, when they do something like this. There was 80 armoured vehicles, uh, a couple of bulldozers, and two helicopters. They all just converged on this prison. And they just about literally levelled the entire prison. Uh, recaptured these prisoners and uh, transported them off to be kept somewhere else. And the, the, the scandalous part of the story, you might have heard about it at the time, there were some US and British security forces at the prison who were stationed there. And as soon as they got word that the Israeli Defence Force was marching into town, they just took off. <laughs> I'm not sticking around for all of this. So all the Western security had gone and the Israelis literally just came in and uh, completely... Uh, demolished this this whole prison, and it was quite a, a, a scary time, really, to be in the in the country. I remember being near. We were near Jerusalem at the time, and you see the the Israeli helicopters flying overhead. And when anything like that happens in Israel, they just lock down the the Palestinian territories, and you really can't go very far at all as a tourist. You just have to hang around and wait for the whole thing to pass. So that was my experience of Jericho, and it kind of reminds you that this, that city has been a place of conflict for so long, and even when you're there, you see archaeologically the ruins, it's been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt so many times. It's eerily reminiscent, actually, of the end of Joshua 6, where Joshua pronounces a curse on Jericho. I don't know whether you've read that, and he says, cursed is anyone who tries to rebuild uh, this, this city. And history has kind of borne that out. It's never really survived very long without something happening. Uh, to coming and, and, and taking it down. So uh, anyway, we're in, in Joshua 6 here, and this is one of the earliest conflicts or war scenes that happens in the city of Jericho, and it's kind of the beginning of Israel's military conquest in the land of Canaan. And until now, in, in the story of Joshua, they have crossed the Jordan, and they've entered this land of Canaan that God's promised to give them, but they haven't really had to deal with too many Canaanites. Uh, it's been reasonably smooth sailing, and they've seen all these miracles of God, and it's been wonderful. But now they actually need to deal with the people in the land. And from a military perspective, uh, what Joshua is, is trying to do is, as you, as you come out of the Jordan River area, there's, a, there's a, a ridge, hill country, that runs right through Israel. And they're heading towards that hill country because Joshua knows if they can take the hill country... It gives them a base from which to take the rest of Canaan. And it makes it much more difficult for the Canaanites to defend themselves. So they're heading towards this, this ridge uh, area, but between them and the hill country, there are two cities. One is called Ai, or Ai, and the one we meet today, the first city, is Jericho. 
So here they are, outside the city of Jericho, millions of Israelites, uh, wondering how this is all going to work. And in those days, I mean, there's a couple of ways you could take a city like that. Uh, One, a, a classic would be that you build siege ramps up to the walls, so you literally build these these ramps so that you can get up and over and you go in and take the city that way. Another way, which was quite common, is if, if you've got the time, you starve them out. So you just wait. And uh, that might have been what the Canaanites thought was happening when they walked around the city day after day. They thought, oh, we, you know, we're, we're being starved out. And they would have had plenty of supplies, I'm sure, but sometimes if the army was patient enough, you just wait until they run out of food and run out of water and then they either die or they surrender. So these were the, these were the options on hand that... that you know, a normal thinking person would have come up with. But God has a different plan. And he says to Joshua, he lays out this battle plan to Joshua. It's in the early verses of Joshua chapter 6. And really the way that it works, and, and you saw it depicted in the, in, the, in, the, in the film, is he says, I want you to take seven priests blowing seven ram's horns, and then in front of them have some army, and behind them have some army, but basically, I want all the fighting men to, to march around the city. You're going to walk around the walls of the city. It was about 600 meters around, not a big city. And you're going to walk around it once, just once for six days. So once a day. You walk around, and then they go back to camp. And you have to wonder what the Canaanites thought of this, you know, peering over the walls for the first six days as this fledgling little army just doesn't say anything. They just blow some trumpets and walk around the city and then take off. I mean, it must have looked a little bit strange. What did they think was going on? You know, We're getting the silent treatment from these guys. You know, They're going to blow the horn so badly that maybe they'll serenade us to death or whatever is going to happen. They're trying to figure out the whole thing. But then on the seventh day, they march around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, the priests give out this prolonged blast of the ram's horn Everybody shouts and the walls of Jericho collapse. And so what you've got, because the army would have been big enough to completely encircle the whole city, that they're completely surrounded. So when the walls come down, literally, the text says, every man just goes straight in. From wherever they are around the outside of the city, the walls have come down. All the fighting men just go straight into, into the city and conquer it that way. Now, that much of the story is familiar enough, and, and a lot of us that have gone through Sunday school and so on, we learn this story, right? It's one of the familiar stories. That's one of the things that makes this story hard to, to really understand, is that in a way, it's familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, because we become quite numb to it. It's just a nice story. Yeah, the walls came down. That's fun. But, but trying to probe and understand, what does this mean? What is it saying? What does this story speak to our lives? Is a little bit harder. Now, let me read one particular verse in this whole account. We won't read all of Joshua 6. You can read that, hopefully, if you've got the time afterwards. But it gets a little bit uncomfortable, and this is the part you didn't see in Veggie Tales. In verse uh, 21, Joshua 6, They devoted the whole city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. That's a bit rough, isn't it? You know, you read, and that is precisely the point at which a lot of people close the Bible and say, I don't want anything to do with a God like that. They destroyed every, you can't get around this, they destroyed every living thing 
in Jericho. Men, women, children, donkeys, cattle, sheep, the whole thing wiped out. And uh, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're in the deep waters now of the Old Testament theology in terms of trying to understand how is it that God could command them to do something like this and actually bless it and use this as part of his plan. Now, what we're going to do, because I want to focus on the, on the Jericho story itself today, but in two weeks' time, we're going to deal with this question specifically, this question of why in the Old Testament does God seem to be such a bully? Why, is he, why does he appear to be such a warmongering, bloodthirsty God who just has it in for the Canaanites and is incredibly excessively violent? And how do you reconcile that with the God of Jesus, the God of love your enemies, the God of do good to those who persecute you? And this is, this is a real issue, and it, it will form part of our question series. So that will be the first week in the question series. We'll tackle this question. Are we talking about two different gods here? Is God bipolar? How on earth do you, do you sort this out? And, and how could he ever have commanded Israel to commit what is effectively genocide against uh, the, the people, the inhabitants of this country? Now, that's going to take a whole message just to deal properly with, with that issue. And so in two weeks, come back and we will we'll tackle that issue head on. But what I want to show you this morning and concentrate on, and it's, it's part of the answer to that question, but I want to show you another voice in this story, and it's one that's often overlooked. And as I study this passage, it's not something that I'd noticed much in the story myself. A lot of people stop at the point that Israel went in and conquered Jericho, but there's actually a lot more to the story. And the very next scene, the, the narrator could easily have left out, but he doesn't. He goes on then, and in verse 22, let's read this part together. Joshua said to the men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house. This is Rahab, the prostitute. Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a safe place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. This is a fascinating part of the story. And what's happening here is back in chapter 2, and you remember Carl preached this message, uh, Joshua had sent out some spies to, to, to suss out what the territory was like in Jericho. And they had lodged at the house of this prostitute named Rahab, who lived in Jericho, and basically was using her house as a brothel. This is, this is what is happening in the story. Uh, and because Rahab had given lodging to the spies, and when the, the Jericho army came along, she'd sent them off in a different direction and hid the spies, uh, the, 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 the Israelite spies had promised her when we come back and take the city, you will be spared. And they made this oath to her and just said, you tie a scarlet uh, ribbon outside your door, and when we come back, you and your family will be okay. Sure enough, you get to Joshua chapter 6, and in the midst of this gruesome battle scene, and you can't avoid that, it is, it is gruesome, it is bloody, but you have this remarkable scene here, where in the midst of war, or just after they've taken the city, Joshua says, now, says to the same two spies, who had originally done the scouting. He says, now you guys go and get Rahab. Go and find Rahab and all of her family 
and bring them out here. Would have been easy, I guess, to pass over that promise. And yes, yes, we'd said that. But, you know, in, in the heat of battle, they could have easily been annihilated. But no, Joshua makes a point of saying, go and find her and bring her out here. Now, Rahab's house, if, you, if you've read Joshua too closely, it literally says Rahab's house was part of the city walls. Now, what does that mean in Joshua 6? What's just happened to the walls? <laughs> They've just collapsed. So Rahab's got a major structural engineering problem in her house now. This is not, you know, the limb report is not looking good. Uh, and so literally her house has collapsed. She is now among the most vulnerable resident in the entire city, just a sitting duck for the Israelites to pick off. But Joshua commands her to be spared. Her and her entire family, they're taken and they're put in a safe place. Um, the text of Joshua 6 says they're placed outside the camp of Israel, but that's not to shun them. That's to simply keep them safe and to give them a period of time because they would have been considered ceremonially unclean. They would need to go through various things. But they are, they, they are spared. And then there's this remarkable verse that we just read in uh, verse 25. Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And listen to this. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. It's a profound story. It really is a beautiful counterpoint to the idea that the God of the Old Testament is just this warmongering, bloodthirsty tyrant. When you actually read Joshua, what you find is the very first Canaanite that appears in the story, Rahab, is not killed but converted. She's not destroyed, she's delivered. The very first Canaanite, even though she, she is in every way an outsider, she places her faith in this God, Yahweh, that she's heard of somehow. I don't know how she's even heard of him, but she'd heard of his deeds. She know, knows who he is. She says, I know that he's promised you this land. I know that he's going to give you guys this land, and so please just spare me. She places her faith in the first Israelites that she can see and find, and as a result, her life is spared, and she is brought into the community of Israel. If that's not a conversion story, what is? That's exactly what conversion is in the New Testament. Obviously, now Jesus has come, it centers around him, but the principle is the same. Rahab places her trust in God, she's delivered, and she's brought into the community of God's people. The whole thing is a story of deliverance. It's a story of conversion. And that's a voice that often doesn't get heard in Joshua 6, because we read it just as a story of conquest and destruction, but it's also a story of deliverance. It's a story of God's mercy. He didn't have to have any such mercy on these Canaanites who were willfully rejecting him and on Rahab, this morally questionable woman. And yet he mercifully reaches in and plucks her and her family out. God is not just bent on destruction and death and murder. He is a God of deliverance. He is a God of grace. And he is a God of infinite mercy for those who would place their trust in him. And Rahab's not the only one. Flick over to Joshua 8 for a minute. It's an intriguing verse here where Joshua, after the first couple of battles, kind of everybody regroups and they take stock and Joshua reads out the covenant again, renews the law, gets everybody focused again on what the story is. And at the end of Joshua 8 in verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. What does that tell you? There's a whole posse of these foreigners 
living among Israel. There's, there's a band of merry men and women here. It's not just Rahab and her family, but as the Israelites had gone from city to city, it appears at least that there had been some in these places who rather than resisting God and rejecting Him had in fact placed their faith in Him and on the basis of that faith, they hadn't been destroyed, but they'd actually been spared and not just spared as POWs. They had been brought within the whole community of Israel. They are identified as Israelites. They're not made into slaves. They're not made as inferior citizens. They are brought into the covenant people. And that says to me that even in these gruesome battle accounts, and Joshua's full of them, there's going to be more. It's a tough book in that respect, and we've got to deal with those issues. But where you find in these cities people who genuinely acknowledge Yahweh, who don't reject and rebel but place faith in Him, their fate is deliverance. It is not destruction. Even if they don't fully understand Him, in so much as they do understand, if they receive and embrace that, rather than turn away from it. These people were spared. And Israel becomes this conglomerate community of Jews and believing non-Jews. And I think what you've got here is this wonderful picture, not of a warmongering God, but of a missionary God. Of a God whose heart is actually for the outsider. Often we think that God became a missionary in the New Testament. That he got to the Gospels and decided, well, maybe... You know, we've had fun with Israel. Now we could maybe open the doors a bit wider and let's have some Gentiles come in and let's go and save the lost. But right from the beginning of Scripture, God's heart has been for the outsider. God's heart has been for those who are beyond the the chosen few and the in-group. His heart has always leaned toward the lost. His heart has always been for those who are not yet in, not yet redeemed. And even His purposes through Israel, even though they don't receive directly a commission to go and make disciples of all nations like we do in the New Testament. His purposes for Israel were were ultimately that all nations would come in through Israel, that they would be a light on a hill, a city on a hill, they would be a light to the world, not so that they would boast and brag and show everyone else how great they were, but so that through them God would draw all people to himself. And you read the Psalms and and parts of Isaiah, and, and there are these wonderful predictions that one day all nations, all people everywhere, Even in the Old Testament, there are these predictions that all nations, all people will come and worship God at his footstool in Jerusalem and Zion and be part of his covenant community. That was God's intention from the very beginning. He is the missionary God. Not a God bent on destruction, but a God bent on deliverance. And Rahab's story continues through the story of the Bible. Apparently, she marries an Israelite. Apparently, they have children. Their children have children. Their children have children. And Rahab's great, 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 a thousand times great grandson is called Jesus. What do you know? You read Matthew 1, and guess who pops up in Jesus' genealogy? You know that part of Matthew that nobody likes and nobody can bother to read? So-and-so begat, so-and-so begot, whoever... But it's fascinating because in the middle of that genealogy, go and read it when you get home, guess who pops up? Rahab. Right there. How embarrassing, you know, how awkward. Rahab in the middle of... of, What does it tell you? See, I think this tells you not just something about Rahab, it tells you something about Jesus. There's four non-Israelites in that genealogy. 
All four are women. And one of them's Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute woman. Right there in the genealogy of the Messiah. It tells you that Jesus has not just come for the in-group. He's not just come to conform to everybody's expectations. He's not just come for the already convinced. He's come for the outsider. He's come to seek and save those who were lost. It's not the healthy that need the doctor. It's the sick. It tells you something about the whole orientation of Jesus' life and ministry towards those on the outside, crossing the boundaries, crossing the margins, every possible taboo, the, 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 the moral issue, the social issue, the gender issue, the cultural issue. With Rahab, all of those barriers were broken, and you find someone who has been brought in from a long, long way outside God's covenant people. This is the whole ministry of Jesus. And of course, Jesus himself, in his incarnation and his death and resurrection, he represents the ultimate missionary activity of God. Whatever happened at Jericho to seek and save the lost is overshadowed by the ministry of Jesus where where God makes this incredible missionary trek across the whole cosmos from heaven to earth and comes and inhabits this world, empties himself, Philippians 2 tells us empties himself of the vestiges of deity, pours himself out, takes the form of a servant, takes the nature and the humanity of of his own creation, lowers himself, lowers himself, lowers himself, even to the point of death. And it's on the cross that God's ultimate missionary heart is revealed. I think you can draw a line from Jericho to Jerusalem, to Calvary. You can draw a line from what happened at Jericho where you have these two themes of destruction and deliverance, of justice on sin but mercy on those who believe. And those two themes, they weave their way through the story of the Bible and then they rush together at the cross in a beautiful way. Destruction and deliverance both coalesce in a wonderful way at the cross. Justice and mercy rushing together. That's what the cross is. It's the fulfillment of everything Jericho was. It's the justice of God. It's the destruction of God in a very real sense on God's enemies, on sin and death and Satan and those who stand against the purposes of God. That is what the cross represents. It fulfills what Jericho was. At Jericho, there's a physical crushing of the Canaanites. At the cross, there is a mighty vanquishing of evil and a decisive victory over the powers of darkness that stand against God. And yet, in the midst of that theme of destruction, there is this beautiful theme of deliverance that rises up and mercy and grace poured out for anyone, anywhere, at any time that would just open their arms and embrace the love and the mercy of Jesus. Because we're all Rahab. You know, we're all Rahab. We all were facing destruction. That's what we all deserve. No distinctions whatsoever. We all deserve death. We all deserve judgment. That's what we have earned. That's what our sin has earned us. But we have, those of us who are united to Christ, we have been spared. We have been saved, not by anything in us, not by anything we deserve, but by the sheer mercy and pleasure of God. We didn't deserve it. We haven't earned it, but we have been spared just as Rahab was. And now we've been brought into God's covenant community. And that should have a humbling effect on us, shouldn't it? Shouldn't that just stop us in our tracks? Especially those of us, most of us here, I'm sure, that are non-Jews. And Paul says, you've been grafted in, you know, you Gentiles, you non-Jews. You, you've got a privileged place at the table here. And we've been grafted in and, and, and now we've been made part of the covenant people that includes all those Jews and Gentiles. 
who placed their faith in the saving power of God. We're all Rahab. It's what we all deserved and we've all been spared. And Rahab's story continues even further than that. She becomes actually a very important person in, in the whole story of the Bible. There's another two times in the New Testament that she crops up in Hebrews and in James. And both times, she's a model of faith, which is just bizarre considering her story. You know, a prostitute. A model of faith. And, and I think in a lot of ways, a model of unlikely faith. I think especially that's what James is saying when he talks about Rahab in James chapter 2. He, he talks about Abraham as a model of faith. Well, of course, Abraham, father Abraham, father of the Jews. But then in the next breath, he talks about Rahab, model of faith. Look at her. And it reminds me, and it should remind us, that nobody is incapable of faith. Nobody is beyond the saving purposes of God. Rahab's the least likely person, honestly, you'd ever expect to crop up in the genealogy of the Messiah. Least likely person you'd ever hope to see in the Hebrews 11 great hall of faith with the heroes of the Old Testament, David and Moses and all of these. And there's Rahab in the middle of it. But it just reminds us, doesn't it, that God extends his love and his grace to anyone, anywhere, no matter how far gone we might think they are, anyone who will just open their arms and place their faith in him. We've got to be careful we don't write people off. Because we're surrounded by Rahabs in our lives. You work with them. You stand next to them on the sidelines of your kid's soccer game and netball game. You see them at the extended family functions. You know, the, we, Rahabs are all around us. That You live next door to them. And we've got to be so careful that we don't write people off, assume they're too far gone, assume they're absolutely incapable of faith because Rahab's story tells us that's not the case. Any heart, no matter how hard, can be softened. Any person can reach a crisis point at which they search for answers and hope they may never have been interested in in their entire life. And part of our journey now as those who have been in Rahab's shoes and been delivered and stand in the awesome grace of God is that our hearts now begin to reflect the missionary heart of our missionary God. That our priorities begin to be His priorities. Our hearts begin to break for the things that break God's heart. And what breaks God's heart more than any other thing is the plight of lost people, lost men and women who don't yet know Him. And there's just an awareness, I think, we need to grasp of those who are around us in this situation because we're so busy just living and making it work and getting our lives together that often we're not even aware of the plight of those around us. We talked a couple of weeks ago about this idea of being sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. And I don't know whether some of you have tried that and seen if, that, if that's working in your lives, but this is one area where it's so important to be open to the prompting of the Spirit in regard to lost people around us, the Rahabs in our world, and move towards them with love and with grace, listening to God. And even before you open your trap, we can at least pray for them, right? This is not about having all the answers. This is not about having a full-blown gospel presentation to be able to give them. But when was the last time you even lifted up the name of someone you know who doesn't know God, a Rahab in your life? When was the last time you even lifted up their name to God and just prayed for them and just asked God, draw them, and give me opportunities in my life to reach them, to say something, to show them something, to model Christ to them. We can start, and often when we do this, when we start praying and when we start asking God for their, uh, for, for, to, to, to stir faith in their lives, it does something for us, doesn't it? It kind of stirs something in us, and we, we, we find ourselves becoming a little bit more focused. You know, if we begin our day by asking God 
What are the opportunities in this day that you have for me? Just to say a word here, to, to be an example here, to reach out here. There's a tuning in to what God may want to do. And you may find that there are some opportunities you never even knew existed. I think a lot of the time the reason that this scares us so much is because we see this missional stuff as pass-fail. You know, we see it like either you, you share the whole package and they become a Christian then and there or else there's nothing gained. And I just don't buy that philosophy. I think people's spiritual journey is just that. It's a journey. And it may be that God's got you in a certain place and there's a Rahab in your life and, and you are there just to, to nurture them just one click. And that line of faith may be a long, long way in the distance, but you are there at this point in time to simply nudge them one click. And that may not be through pulling out a PowerPoint presentation of the four spiritual laws. It may simply be through living out the gospel before them. It may simply be through investing in a friendship with that person and actually taking an interest in their lives without an agenda. This is not have a gospel tract in your back pocket and I'll love you if I can share the gospel with you. No, this is just, let me, let me build a relationship. Just take an interest. Love them without an agenda. Love them without an ulterior motive. Just love them. Just be there with them. And who knows at what crisis point they may just turn to someone they believe has answers and they believe might be able to give them some hope. It may be through your life. It may be just through a word that's spoken at the right time. It may be through building conversational bridges, finding things in conversations, everyday conversations, that can take you to a, to a slightly different level, a slightly deeper level. Find something. If there are people in your life that are interested in a particular issue, I was talking to a guy who, who's got, got a mate and they're interested in all kinds of weird sort of new agey stuff and different splinter groups of this and that. If, if you know someone like that, then guess what? You're going to become an expert on that particular area may not even be your natural interest, but you can't engage meaningfully with someone if you're not prepared to do a bit of reading, do a bit of research, find out where are they coming from, why are they believing this. Then you can begin to have an intelligent conversation. If you've got an interest, someone you know has got an interest in the origins of life and faith and science and these kinds of things, it's time to do some reading. It's time to bone up on, on, that, on that sort of stuff and, and, and find a way of having that inroad so that when they come to you and when the questions come and when you get into the conversation you can meaningfully engage them in dialogue and as we do these practical things ordinary everyday things taking the initiative just launching into conversation that you might not otherwise have with someone slowly over time our hearts are beginning to reflect the the god of rahab and we're beginning to become just a little bit more postured toward the outsider and beginning to reflect God's own heart for lost people. doesn't mean you need to have the gift of evangelism. doesn't mean you need to have the answer to everything. It simply means that God's heart is becoming yours. It begins by acknowledging that we're all Rahab and that in that place, we are then God's hands and feet to reach other Rahabs in the world. So all this, I think, springs out of the story of Jericho. It's one of those stories that we've been around a lot of times often in our lives and found different things and it's a story where these themes of destruction and deliverance somehow go hand in hand and there's a tension there and it's not easy to keep them together but I think they lead us to the cross where justice and mercy 
meet. Or where the old hymn says, where wrath and mercy meet together. They come rushing together at the cross. They remind us that at the cross, God conquered our enemies. He conquered sin and death. He freed us and he delivered us. And we stand in grace. And finally, Jericho should put a bit of steel in our bones to reach those that God has placed around us in our world, in our circle of influence for however long we have them. Not being guilty when we don't, not wallowing in shame and self-pity, but just taking the opportunities in ordinary ways and everyday conversations to reach out to the Rahabs in our life. Father, give us the strength to do this, we pray. God, we thank you that we have stood in Rahab's shoes and we've been saved and we've been delivered at the cross. We thank you for the way that your word is ingeniously put together, that we can see the story of Jericho. And on the other hand, we see how this somehow foreshadows the miracle of the cross. God, help us to grasp a little more what it was that you accomplished for us at Calvary. And we pray, Father, that you would just turn us outward this morning to love and minister and reach those in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools and university campuses who don't yet know you. Focus us on those people. And even now, Lord, we draw their names to our mind. We draw their faces to our mind. We think of them and we pray for them. And we ask, Jesus, that you would lift the veil that's blinding them from you right now that you would tear down the wall that's remaining in their life and you would bring them into your kingdom. We acknowledge that's something only you can do, but we want to be your hands and feet and we accept that challenge. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.